Deep Space Nine is the Star Trek with the greatest focus on political concepts like colonialism, feminism, queerness, and post-scarcity economics. Join hosts and guests who aren't just Trekkies, but activists, academics, artists, therapists, even elected officials, as we take a deep dive into the text and subtext where few Star Trek podcasts have gone before. Welcome to Deep Space Dive. We discuss Deep Space Nine's themes and characters with a different topic on each episode. Unlike many other quality Deep Space Nine podcasts, we are not an episode-by-episode recap. As a result, every episode of our podcast is full of spoilers. If you're just watching Deep Space Nine for the first time, we recommend that you finish your binge and then go back and Listen to our archives. They'll be here waiting for you. I'm Sarah Daniel Rasher. When I'm not getting paid to use math to save the world, I write about film and figure skating. I was the founding captain of my high school Star Trek club, and I once got Nicole DeBoer to kiss me at a convention. I am Elon Eleven, and I'm jealous. Um, no, I'm, I'm also the host of Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. I've worked at the intersection of comics, nerd culture, and social change for over a decade, and my biggest Trek cred is I got to give a speech on fan activism at a rally organized by Lita, aka Chase Masterson. I've also been active in New York politics since, I want to say 2004, which is how I got to know this week's guest. Senator Gustavo Rivera has represented the 33rd Senate District in the Bronx since November of 2010. Since taking office, Senator Rivera has fought health inequality, serving as the chair of the New York State Senate's Health Committee. I know him as a champion for single-payer health care, bail reform, and sentencing reform. Gustavo was born in Centurce, Puerto Rico. In 1998, Gustavo graduated from the University of Puerto Rico and moved to New York to begin a doctoral program in political science. He's been here ever since. He also has taught as an adjunct professor at Pace University and Hunter College. When Gustavo ran in 2010, it was extremely rare for an insurgent candidate to run against the corrupt Democratic establishment and win, but he did it. And it showed everyone what was possible in New York. It was a really big deal for us, which is to say he is both an elected official and an experienced campaigner. And as I recently learned on Twitter, he is a huge Trekkie. Welcome to the show, Gustavo. I am extremely excited to be here. I'll tell you that this, I just was, I just was involved in a, an unnecessary primary. And one of the things that made me angry about yep. that primary <laughs> is I could not do this podcast earlier. So I just want to say that for the record. Oh, thank you. I was thinking the same thing. Uh, we had spoken before it became evident that the real estate industry was going to put, and charter schools were going to put like, I don't know, was it like millions of dollars in it a was race over, against It was about you? maybe uh, like 1.4 million around there, give or take. Yeah. So yeah, before we knew they were going to be spending $1.4 million trying to get a uh, school privatization person elected in your place, um, I uh, we had planned on having you come on. And then when I was like, oh, fuck, we've got an actual race, we, we sort of was like, okay, well, we'll deal with this after the election. And yeah, no joke, the night that we, the night of the election, when we saw you won the primary, I tweeted like, also, Gustavo can come on my podcast now. <laughs> and so, I believe I responded saying, let's let's schedule it immediately. Yes, yes, exactly. We did. So I was like, I'm like, I hope I don't sound self-interested in writing that, but you you made me feel validated in that sentiment. So good to hear it. Good to hear it. You know, I, I've known you've been a nerd forever because you're obviously a nerd, but like 
I did not know you were a Star Trek nerd in particular. So tell me, how, how did you first get into Star Trek as a, as a fan? Well, first of all, I will take that as a compliment. Yes, I am indeed a nerd, proudly so. So I yeah. uh, probably would, I started, I started with Star Trek with the movies, actually, and it's because I was born in 75, right? So I was obviously not around for the original series. And although it was in reruns in the 80s, it was probably probably the Wrath of Khan and and then the search for Spock that I actually started uh, that I when when I really started becoming like a big Trek fan and because mm. those were available then on VHS tapes that was one particularly particularly the Voyage Home the one with the friggin whales that was the one that I watched because <laughs> we recorded it off of. Uh, because when I was a kid, we used to record movies off of HBO. We'd record it on a tape, right? And then we could watch it again. So I watched I watched the Voyage, Star Trek for the Voyage Home, like dozens and dozens and dozens of times when I was a kid. So by the time that the next generation came around, and then Deep Space Nine and even Voyager, like I would watch it like religiously on a weekly basis. Mm. So were you did you start watching DS9 as soon as it was airing, basically? DS9, yes, because um, I picked up uh, the, the, the next generation like a couple of seasons in, and I was always and I was always enamored with it. But it was but it was actually Deep Space Nine that became my absolute total favorite. And it was it, for me, it was mm-hmm. and it took me a while to figure this out. But it's just it was the first show in which it was no longer about exploration. It wasn't about like let's go see what we can go. You know, it's not about since there's there's no. They weren't moving all the time, you know. They weren't traveling somewhere. Instead, they just got to to deal with so many issues, whether it's you know sort of PTSD, sexuality, religion, uh, you know, and certainly politics. So I was I was just completely fascinated by it. And there's, and I, I was like, and, and I'm very thankful that you made me rewatch it. I rewatched the entire show a couple of years ago. I think it was one of my pandemic watches, and then. Uh, same, but that was, same. There you go. But, but that was two years ago. So then for this podcast today, I watched like in the last three or four days, I watched like seven or eight episodes it w- all the way from the from the first season all the way up to the sixth season. So I got to like be reminded of so much. And I'm sure that we'll talk about it, but I I absolutely loved, loved the show. And and I watched Deep Space Nine. I watched all the way through basically religiously when it would air. Yeah, we were delighted when I yeah when we sent a list of of episodes that was sort of like here's some ones we were thinking about. You don't have to watch all of these, and you were like, no, no, we're you're, I'm watching them all. And we were like, yes, <laughs> yes that I is did. awesome. We love yeah. that. I did. I watched all of them, <laughs> and I was I was reminded of oh my goodness, I was reminded of so much. I mean, I I I want to I want to take it one step at a time. So I will I will leave my comments. I have a couple of uh, I have a couple of general comments though. I am reminded of how mm-hmm. silly the fights were. The fights choreography, the fight choreographies were so silly that the punch, the double punch, you know, when they like grab their hands, like in a, in a, in a, in a triangle and then like hit somebody in the face. You know the one I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 That, that was, oh, you mean the hand to hand combat. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. The fight choreographies are just ridiculously slow. Like I, it's just, it was one of those things where I was, I was, I was reminded, it was so quaint. To watch like such a like mm. silly fight like like choreographies, it was very that was very bad. But I appreciated it. it was like you know, old school in that regard. You know that right now they would bring in like 
you know, uh, all sorts of consultants and make it like an, an you know, a jujitsu fight or some other stuff like that. So this, that, so that was cool. <laughs> and, yeah. and the, um, and, and also the, that, that I watched so many from like different seasons, it made me like, it certainly told me it. Cause I, cause when I tell people about D space nine, I said, it's absolutely the best Trek series, but you got to put up with the fact that it was so slow at the beginning. And the fact that you had 23 mm. episodes per season, because that was just the way that it was done. And also the fact that they were so stuck on this, of this formula, at least early on of doing, they always had to be a B story. So there was, so, so all of these conventions, one of the great things about seeing so many episodes from different seasons in the last couple of days was that I got to be reminded of how they just figured out kind of to be their own show by the time that they got to the fourth or the fifth season. And, and, you know, certainly by the time mm -hmm. the dominion war happened, like they were absolutely firing on all thrusters. So I was, I was very thankful for you to remind me of that. So yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we talk about a lot here is that it does have this sort of mixture of like quaintness and things that feel like you can really see the 25 years old growing on it and things that like, it could have been filmed last week. So absolutely, it, yeah. it's fun to hear you reflecting on that as well. And, and the performances are there's some of these folks are so good. Avery Brooks is freaking like hitting it out the park. Mm -hmm. I, the first, I believe that you asked me to watch one of the episodes in which the first time that you see the longing in Odo's face for Kira, which she says that she mm -hmm. loves, uh, uh, uh uh, what's his face? Um, Vedic Varile. Yeah, you're right. It I love him. And it was the first time that you saw him go like, that mm -hmm, and he, and he kind of changes the subject, <laughs> but the longing is there. And you're like, damn it, Rene Abergenois was freaking great. And I had just, and I remembered how, and, and I, you know, I pardon, pardon me for a second here while I go back to my teenage self, but, but Nana Visitor certainly like, Oh yeah. my goodness. She be, she brought all <laughs> oh, oh, oh. um yeah. 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 Kieran Reese. <laughs> you're in good company. It's you're in good company here. Do not fear. Um as you know, for sure. It, and it, yeah, it's it, it was funny watching that episode to be like, oh, this is when the show needed you to absolutely know that Odo did indeed have those feelings and that he mm -hmm. did indeed not want Kira to be aware of them in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. One of the questions that we always think about is, you know, do you feel like DS9 or Star Trek in general influenced your politics or your activism growing up? I think that I, I got to be honest with you, not so much only because uh, I was also, since I'm an all around nerd, I might as well just completely like, you know, be, be completely open and honest about this. I was also an RPG nerd. And I played like Dungeons no. and Dragons, Vampire the Masquerade, mm -hmm. Mage the Ascension, like all those yeah. things. And I and I and I loved Trek for its more utopian vision. And I kind of took more of what politics, like as far as politics, for more from my RPG stuff, particularly Vampire the Masquerade, because mm. uh, it was all about you know people being backstabbers and like intrigue and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And so I kind of. Uh, always, I kind of sort of assumed that that's what politics was going to be like. I had no idea that I was going to, you know, be uh, in this world as a, you know, as a main player in it, right? But it, when I when I thought about utopias and societies in utopia, 
We're thinking about the things that we're trying to get to, or things that we're trying to achieve. Certainly, Trek was absolutely on my mind. But again, as I've revisited, what was great about DS9, I believe, is that it just started, it was much more gray than Next Generation, uh, and, and certainly than the original series. There was, there was like so much more humanity in it that I so appreciate. Like as much as I love, as much as I love Picard, as much as I love, you know, everyone in that show, DS9 just seemed more human to me. But as far as my politics are concerned, mm-hmm. I got to say that I probably borrowed more from, from the intrigue in my RPG playing as opposed to, to from watching Trek. So are you basically feeling like the Senate Republicans would be the Ventru in the Camarilla? Look at you. Look at you showing off your, your knowledge. I will have you know that, you know, yes, I, I am. I'm by the way, just for, just for, just for, to, to go, to go just a little deeper into that, into that rabbit hole, but not all the way in my favorite client is in Osferatu. And I am absolutely like, I have oh. a high, high level Nosferatu. That was my favorite, absolute favorite clan. I loathe, loathe, loathe the Ventru and, and the Toreador even more. <laughs> So I can't. Really? Wow. Oh, yes. You are counterintuitive to every other player I've ever worked with. And someday we'll have to play a game together because oh my God. no I, one has ever please, said either of those things to me. So Oh my God. Yes. I, I am so I'm, I will we that should be another podcast, but certainly my 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 RPG. Okay, we're gonna stuff, do another podcast. Stuff. We'll do another podcast of that. Sarah's leading another RPG that we're doing together as well. So they're totally they're totally down with that. I'll, I'll get back to you there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're currently playing something called Thirsty Sword Lesbians mm-hmm. in 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 space, of course. Um, thirsty. I'm sorry. The, the name the name is called the name of the game is Thirsty Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Yes, sword. And, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. not one that I'm familiar yep. with, but God bless y'all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, it's a, it's a really good game. Actually, it's a very different space of the future than the one we have from from ds9 before we spend the entire time talking about okay. rpgs even though we yes. definitely could oh yeah um so yeah. we were sort of thinking about you mentioned that deep space nine has sort of a shift towards hu- feeling more human than other series yes and one of the things we were also thinking about is that deep space nine has sort of a political shift where the earlier series and earlier movies really clearly positioned democratic socialism as the political system of the future and like the end result of social and technological process. Mm -hmm. But in Deep Space Nine, we see a lot of governments that are just not democratic and some of them are fairly functional. Like we see like the Klingons who I actually had to like remind both of us that's not a democratic system at all. Like And then we see like the Cardassians, we see the Ferengi, and we see the Dominion. And then when we do see democratic societies like Bajor and the Federation, they have serious problems with corruption, with inequality, with just sort of factionalism. So we were wondering if you had insight into what Deep Space Nine is saying about the future of political systems and the possibility of having political utopias. I think that... The so if we talk, for example, about the collaborator, you asked me to 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 watch that one, mm-hmm. and I by the way, I, I I had forgotten how much I love Kira Norris and how much I hate Kai Wynn. 
Oh my God, I hate that woman. <laughs> Such a duplicitous, slimy bastard. And but but that but that that I, that episode, and I believe that there's another one a little bit later on that you have folks ask me to watch, are about the struggles of democratization, like societies that are yeah. post-colonial societies trying to establish trying to establish democracies. In like, for example, it, you, we can certainly think about some of post-Soviet republics, or we can think about South Africa, for example. The idea that there was a, um, certainly in the case of Bajor, you had an occupying force that left. In the case of South Africa, you had, you had a, not an occupying force per se, but a, min- but a racist minority that ruled the country until the, until the racial majority took over. But the, the struggles of how to actually establish a democratic system definitely show there. And the, and the, 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 this is why I'm saying it's certainly much more human. I'm not sure that a utopia is possible. Like, I think, you know, I, one of the things that I say to people all the time um, that I used to say to people all the time about New York City is that I kind of believe that this is the closest that we're going to get to a utopic society, to a utopia in a society. And the reason I say that is because I have not seen a place that is just so diverse as far as demographics, as far as ages, as far as religions, as far as languages. And for the most part, certainly there's clashes. Certainly there's like, like, you know, we brush up against each other and sometimes we punch a little bit, but for the most part, we get along. And for the most part, we appreciate each other. And for the most part, we value each other that's different. So this is probably the closest that we're going to get. And so the idea that then that you would see uh, that you would see Bajor struggling with establishing a democratic society, and then having to deal with the fact that one of its most that one of the most important parts of its of its culture is its faith, and the fact that the that the that the religious leaders certainly Kai Wen being being the main one have like deep political like deep political and power power interests, right? So it's not just about uh, uh, you know, Opaka, for example, right? That we see who we see in, in, in flashbacks. Certainly she made, you know, there's that, there's that very tough choice that she made. Uh, that's, that's actually uh, talked about in the collaborator of, of, of revealing, uh, uh, revealing for the sake of safety of, of millions of people revealing how, where a couple of thousand lived, et cetera. And that there was a, there was that, uh, uh, these, the, these folks were, were, were exterminated. But she is viewed yeah. as somebody who was deeply, uh, deeply faithful and that ultimately cared about, used her faith as a way to talk about how to make the life of all Bajorans better and that she was very, uh, you know, selfless in that regard and that she always thought about Bajorans first and then about her second. And Kai Wynn is completely different from that. So the, the, the struggles that you have when, you, when, when this is at the center of what your, what your culture is. The faith is at the center of the culture, and then you have somebody who is respected because of her position in, as a as a leader of faith, but certainly a power hungry douche. Like it's just it just shows the the how difficult democracies are to both establish and to maintain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find it really interesting that you're sort of drawing attention to New York City as as a place that's really trying to push toward that vision of utopianism. And I actually see my home state of Illinois having some of the same experiences where it's like we've got a more progressive governor than anybody really thought he was when we elected him. 
Mm. And um, a super maturity in our legislative bodies and um, for better or for worse, whatever you think about Lori Lightfoot, a Democratic um, mayor of Chicago, and seeing both the things that get accomplished that are tremendous and the things that just can't happen and where things get bottlenecked. Um, and the idea that you can have optimal conditions in what, in a lot of ways politically, and then it sort of opens up the new issues that can arise. Certainly. Well, I mean, this thing with New York, right, is like, sorry, I was gonna say, you know, we have this trade-off where for the most of my life, you know, you'd be like, oh, the Senate's the problem, the state Senate's the problem, because the Republicans had control of the state Senate or functional control of the state Senate for, you know, longer than my lifespan then now that the democrats have control of the state senate we're like oh fuck it's the assembly you know carl heastie's <laughs> democratic runs the assembly is like preventing you know preventing progressive policies from coming through and now the assembly is the problem we have to get better the different houses will each of the state government will pivot between being the problem in order to prevent progressive policies from passing. And so I don't view it as being an impossibility, more like as being aware that the power is never stable and that the interests of capital are always there to have to be fought. Um, and, you know, I mean, as I was suddenly we had to deal with Carl Heastie. Yeah, yeah. As a parenthesis, you should have Carl on. I believe that he is an enormous fan of the, of the original series, for the record. But... Really? <laughs> yes, yes, seriously. Interesting. I can perhaps I can hold that over. I know this is a DS9 podcast, but I'm you just saying, know. like, he might be a fan of the original. Of, of, he's a big fan of the original series, as I understand it. Okay. But one That's thing I was going to say is that funny that again, the idea is that it's not called a struggle for no for, for nothing, right? It's there. I I just have a right, sense right. that we that we have to constantly try to, you know, as, as we say, we try to we have the ideals of the country. When the country, the United States of America was founded, the ideals that it was founded on were these ideals, right? These, these concepts that were kind of these heightened, you know, heightened things that we we're trying to achieve while it was done by white landowning males that excluded basically anybody but themselves from actual having political power. And we've worked. The struggle has been about expanding that. And certainly it is not, you know, it doesn't, it's not, uh, it doesn't move in that direction always it it can retrench right so we have to constantly yeah. struggle and fight to actually make it a better more inclusive better democratic society and try to get closer to those ideals but, but that's what i'm saying that this is that what that that i believe that what this uh that that what is this for example there's the other the other episode that one of the episodes that you suggested shakar which had the, the this is the the whole reclamator one right so the idea that Kai Wynn yeah. was just like, I am going to as a small and petty person and just wanted to have order and wanted to establish this authority. So she would go to a war over, you know, over, over reclamators, over some uh, with, without having an, without giving an opportunity to actually, you know, negotiate and try to get a better. It was all about how is she going to, to establish authority that shows kind of the back and forth, the struggle that we hope that we constantly have to go through. Because we've created institutions, and then we'll have small, petty people actually occupy those institutions, and and we have to make the institutions better because we have to save ourselves from small, petty people, which will you know will come because humanity's <laughs> like that. What I find so fascinating about that episode, and also about 
any of the other episodes that have to do with Bajoran economic development is like, on the one level, you're looking at Kai Wen explaining how they need these soil reclamators because they have to be used around the country, around the planet equitably. And you're like, yeah, that is true. Like you can't just say this one area that happened to have access to them first should have a monopoly on them. We need to have, and we need, we, and I see what we're, you know, we might need to look at what like, global uh, what global planning looks like when it comes to resource development for the country but then as it plays out you're like oh but she's also just doing this like you said to like wield petty control and is not and is deciding she's trying to dictate a national agricultural plan like and you know a la Mao or stalin and using that as an excuse to steamroller people so it's sort of like it sounds like it's and, and and I but I don't want people to take from that the feeling like well obviously anytime somebody says you can't have what you want whenever you want it it's because they're a douchebag you know <laughs> no yeah yeah there's so many instances it's one of the ways that deep space nine is embedded in my brain where I'll hear about some sort of political conversation getting bottlenecked over a resource or something that has you know competing regional needs and I'll be like okay, they're fighting over reclamators. Like it's such, <laughs> yeah. a, it's, it's such a powerful analogy for like, they just really hit on both like the perfect techno babble for it. Mm -hmm. And like just the perfect sort of narrative analogy for the way that it can be both a petty squabble and something that really does have meaning for equity and meaning for people's lives because at the center of it mm -hmm. it was they were the idea was she was she was doing it as the the reasoning for it and this is why it's like there was there was no she didn't kai win did not allow for this to be decided by any type of diplomacy because ultimately it was about it was a, pow a power move for her the but the goal yeah. of yeah. Uh, but the goal of making sure that the reclamators would be in a part of the of, of the planet that would actually produce uh products for export to 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 bring wealth to the planet and to put them in a better situation as they said to actually join the federation ultimately like we can i, I can see how it would be how, how that would remind you of it because those those are certainly both legitimate things if if it wasn't yeah. a small petty person in the middle of it then might we there might have been some negotiation possible and kira tried homegirl tried but Mm -hmm. But you know she got tested, yeah. and then yeah. she went back to her old ways and that weird, silly fighting that they did, which, which is still it's still <laughs> so funny to me. These these yeah. stunted fights are so ridiculous. Yeah, and it was hard because they were hoarding those resources unfairly, but at the same time, it's like the way it's like Win made it so that it was hard to actually achieve equity because she was kind of doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, from the season one episode where progress, where, you know, you have the older farmers trying to maintain subsistence agriculture, while Bejor is like time to actually to do global export of our agricultural products, you know, my brain is just like, I don't know, guys, this sounds like an IMF kind of situation. Maybe you don't want to, maybe you want us to do some more uh, diversity of your agricultural systems and maybe you don't want to pivot to export i don't you know i don't know it felt very 90s to me actually for the assumption to be that of course they should be moving away from subsistence and towards 
um, and, and, and it was the nineties and towards like global exports, you know, and then we look at like the, the, the outcomes of having monocrops and being in Puerto Rico. And it's like, we should be able to grow most things here. And yet, you know, they're going to be limited to only certain kinds of export crops. And like, what does that mean? Leave an island or what's that leave people with when they're trying to um, just be extractive and make mm-hmm. them be dependent on international trade? I have feelings. <laughs> I understand. And you, I'm sad because that's right. the only one that I didn't get to. That that season oh, one no. episode fifteen, okay. I, I did not. Sorry. I did. I did not get to. No, no, no. Yeah. Don't apologize for that. Because that. But now. But I am gonna. But I am gonna still watch it because it, it does. It absolutely reminds me of of like what you're describing. I, and I vaguely remember this episode, but it definitely reminds me of yeah. this I, of this notion that you're going to have entire tracts of land that are made not to feed people, instead just to have it as a product. And then you have like whether it was cane or pineapples or coffee and you did not have uh, as as opposed to having the ability to have the farmer choose what it is that they're going to to plant so that they can actually feed themselves and their family and maybe have mm-hmm. uh, provide locally and have and have that be kind of a the, the discussion again of how we actually achieve uh, a, a better situation for everybody because yes having a uh, a, a larger an ability to sell things to provide more economic activity and more economic opportunity. But what does that do to folks who, you know, can barely feed themselves because they can't grow in their own land, mm-hmm. something that they can actually eat? Yeah. I have a question for you, Gustavo. If you are in the Bajoran government, do you feel like they should join the Federation or maintain their independence? Okay. Well, that one <laughs> I would say no. I would say because the the federation is like the United Nations. It is not it, it, at least the way I see it. It is like the United Nations in which certainly there are there are there are allyships that are formed, but it's not one. Like they still maintain some level of autonomy, not necessarily independence, but certainly autonomy. And I would and I would say in that situation that. It, it, at least it, the, I would say that they would, I would, I would be, see, I'm still thinking about it as you asked me. I would say we should join it. I would yeah. say we should join the Federation as because of the nature of the relationship as I understand it, right? The, as far as, and, and I don't know what the new, uh, what the new series have done to how the Federation is structured, but certainly in the, right. in the, in this series, as, as I understand it, certainly in Next Gen and, and DS9, uh, and I guess Voyager. The the notion of the the federation as a you know as a as a federation of planets, each one having its level of autonomy, but then sharing intelligence, sharing culture, sharing science, sharing resources, uh, and and being you know and and kind of belonging to this uh, you know to this to this group of, of of folks that that each individual planet maintains a level of autonomy as opposed to say a state in a, you know, cause I know that we were talking about this before the idea of, you know, whether there's any parallels between the situation in Puerto Rico and uh, you know, whether Puerto Rico should become the 51st state of the United States or not. And I would say that in this case, uh, the situation is very different because it would be uh, it, in a sense, it would be, a, it would be, the the parallel would not be the federation the parallel would be returning to some sort of relationship with the cardassians i believe that that would be a much more mm-hmm. apt comparison 
because in the case of the of mm -hmm. the federation they're they're coming in and they're saying we're going to be helping you out we're going to you know we're going to provide some level of stability some military assistance if necessary etc and we're going to provide you with technology so that you can get back on your feet all these sort of things like for example i mean think about the fact that if they were a member of the federation they wouldn't have had the issue about the damn reclamators because they would have been able to reach out to the federation and say like we only have reclamators for half the planet but can you help us out to produce more so that we can have them all over? And I am certain that that would have been resolved, right? As as opposed to if we if we go as far, the, the reason why it's not a parallel to the situation of Puerto Rico is because although I'm sure that many folks will disagree, I believe that the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico has not been a productive one for Puerto Ricans. And ultimately, we are a colony of the yeah. United States, and and we have not had a level of autonomy or independence that has allowed us to determine our own future. And we have, it has been the extraction of, of Puerto Rican resources when, you know, when it was in the 18th and 19th century, it might've been farms, but in the, in, in the 21st century, we're just talking about a place where you can dump a lot of products that can be purchased uh, and not necessarily, I mean, not necessarily something that is beneficial to the people who actually live in Puerto Rico. So I, I don't believe there's a parallel between the Federation. It would be a parallel between like going back to the Kardashians and saying like, well, take us back in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's a really important distinction to make that I think um, resolves a lot of the problematic um, parallels that people try to make between the Federation and powerful countries like the United States. Whereas I was thinking like, the Federation is very analogous to NATO in a lot of ways and like conversations we're having about countries joining NATO where there's not a question of whether they're going to ma maintain their autonomy. Um, but at the same time, there's countries that really held out of that relationship for a long time for exactly the fear of that autonomy. This is, again, why I think that DS9 is a superior series, because certainly the next generation had this basically uh, this very positive view of the federation which is which i still which which i still would say is you know again we're talking about utopias we're talking about a fictional story etc but the introduction of that part of that secretive part of the of their of the government if you will of the federation the fact that there was this secret entity that you know started wars and did also basically it was a, it was at section 30 whatever 31 but it's okay. fine absolutely it was a, it was a it was a parallel to the cia but it was as a way for them to say, you know, we want to make this more gray. We want to experiment here with what the format has been of, of Trek. And we want to, you know, say that it's a little, it's a little bit muddier than, than it might, than it might've seemed. It's not as pretty as it, as, as it might've seen before. And, you know, so that, that, that I was just reminded of that, that there was that section 30, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I will never, I will never remember numbers. So I just should defer to Sarah every time. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. 31. It's um, definitely 31. <laughs> I wanted to dive into the pale moonlight just because it's an episode that we haven't covered a lot on the podcast. And it's such a classic example of a lot of the ethical challenges we've been talking about where the idea of what might be right seems at odds with maintaining democratic or progressive or just sort of like values of openness 
I'm just really excited to hear your thoughts, Gustavo, on that episode and how it fits into the conversation we're having. Okay. Another thing that we hadn't talked about yet is that you also gave me a lot of episodes with Garrick in it. This, Andrew Robinson. This, Andrew Robinson. Oh my God. Yeah. He's so good. He's so, I don't know if he's, is he still with us? Yes. Okay. He is yep. not only still with us, he is now doing YouTube plays of Garrick and Bashir oh, yes. fan fiction with Alexander Siddig and occasionally Armin <laughs> Shimmerman. They all get to, oh, and Sir Lofton I think has done some too. They like all get together on the inter- mm-hmm. internet and return to play their characters. So good. He's so good. Okay, so that that's the first thing. Yeah. Garrick is a delight. This yeah. one, again, Avery Brooks should do this as a one-man show. Like him talking directly to camera when he is just, you know, uh, confessing his sins uh, to someone that will never mm-hmm. hear it. Right. Uh, had, he should do that as a one man show, but this one, this one was fantastic. Yeah. For, for yeah. This, yeah. Certainly for the performances, but also because as you say, it really deals with the fact that there, there were, there are tough choices that have to be made when, which is, which is the reality, right? There is, this is the, the toughest of choices, right? The idea that as in the middle of a war, when you know that there are more and more of your countrymen, in this case, you know, allies of the Federation, not just humans, but every one of them, dying every single day, and that you have an opportunity to actually fundamentally change the shape of that conflict. Those are those are things that we really have to deal with, right? So the it's not something that me as a state legislator, I don't have to deal with things that are so so heavy, but certainly there are the, the question about what would you do in a situation in which you know that your actions can have a net positive impact, but still you have to violate in this case, like some of his, you know, the, the fact that he knows that he was an accessory to murder many, a few times. Right. And Garrick is one that did it because yeah. Garrick told, as Garrick tells him at one point, it's like, I know why you came to me, bro. Like, you ain't going to do this shit. You weren't going <laughs> to do it. You needed yeah. somebody to do it. And guess what? You picked the right guy. I know what the fuck to do here. And I know that I'm going to have to lie to you about it, but I'm still going to, or, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I need to do because I know what you're asking is the right thing to do. We need to end this shit. And for him, it was also a pride, a, a pride issue, right? Because the, Dominion had taken over Cardassia and he was like, these motherfuckers, they're, they're doing what they're, he was, it was, it was it, it, being the prideful Cardassian that he is. He was like insulted by that. So he was like, if I have something to say yeah. about cleaning these fuckers out of my planet, I'm going to do that. And, and so he, but, but the, but the balance that one has to strike when dealing with very, with, with, with knowing that the actions that one might take would have a net positive impact, but that you have to take some of your ethical standards or your morals. And, and that's something that we ask ourselves all the time, right? We have to, it, it, and, and it is very rare that you get to a point as it does in this, in this particular episode where it is literally about life and death. But there are many instances in between that and, you know, and, and, and something far less serious where we in government have to, you know, are faced with similar decisions. And we just have to, you know, uh, and so, so the fact that the show actually helps us get there and takes one of the most, you know, one of the most, like the character who's an absolute, uh, you know, gentleman, a 
you know, a, a, a moral standard who sets like, you know, somebody who's like somebody who stood up to Picard. Remember that first episode of DS9 yeah. where he was just like looking at Picard, yeah. which many other folks would not have done in that position, even with the situation that occurred. Obviously, his wife had died in Wolf 359. So obviously he's, he's thinking that this guy's the guy that's, that's, uh, that's responsible, but not many people would have done that. And from the beginning, he was like this moral character who is like, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm, and I'm going to fight the right fight. And then he's put in that position and he's like, I got it. What am I going to do here? And at the end, as he says, I just, I would, would I do it again? Yes, I would, but I'm not going to tell anybody about it. Erase this whole thing. (laughs) So it's, he needs to live with it. And he knows that part of his responsibility at that moment is living with that decision and living with the fact that he, that there's a couple of people, there's a couple in this case, we got, you know, there were Romulans in this case. Oh, and whatever, whatever race that, that blue white dude that, uh, yeah, that, that whatever race that was, whatever, the, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever that guy was, but that the, alien, the one off rando alien. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The one off rando alien. Like he knows that the life of that dude and of all the Romulans who were on that ship are on his, uh, he is, he is an accessory to murder and he knows this, but he's like, but yeah. it had to be done. And now the and now the Romulans are in the race in, in the war, and we might have a chance of winning this. So, fuck it, let's go. I mean, I think something that the episode doesn't spell out, but that I really viewed clearly watching it was that he, he it, as much as it's in the Federation's interest for the Romulans to join the war, it is also in the Romulans' interest to stop the Dominion. And mm-hmm. like, I think that it becomes a little harder to swallow this story if we believe that cisco is doing something that is amoral to the romulans when it's actually like guys for the argument cisco presents them with earlier like they're going to go after you next are you fucking crazy is is true like it just is true well of course but alana of course it is but guess what they're not they're romulans not vulcans what you're saying is a logical conclusion to, <laughs> to how these people operate. But guess what? <laughs> there was the have, have you never heard of the Great Divide? Have you never heard of? of uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. exactly. But I just mean, ethically speaking, it feels different to me. Like, I don't I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I feel like in the story of the show, of course, Cisco did the right thing, because that is how the show is structured. If this was the real life, I don't know what I'd be, what my ruling would be, but I do think that like it is a factor that ultimately the Romulans needed to join the fight for the Romulans' sake, not just for ours. But it was ultimately yeah. for the, it is obvious that some, certainly the Romulans were at. I think that probably certain folks over there thought, yes, we are, and we would be at risk, but we can probably handle these folks. the 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 idea of having them like clean house with some of the enemies that we've had for literal generations. Yeah. It's it's too it's too sweet a thing to to turn down. And they would figure we're going to deal with that later. It was it was absolutely necessary to present them with such a with, with such a scenario for them to actually get involved because they're ultimately self-serving. And the self-serving the immediate self-serving is like these guys are taking care of our enemies for us. God bless America. So they're going to let it go. They're going to let it happen. So the idea <laughs> that this was what was necessary, they needed to believe that there was an mm-hmm. actual threat against them that was direct and not just some logical conclusion to what the actions of the Dominion ultimately would yeah. be. 
Again, yeah. re- again, reunification hadn't happened yet. Alana, what's going on over there? Come on. <laughs> I think there's a lot of delusions of Romulan exceptionalism, right? Yeah. It's making a really powerful point that I think is really analogous to what we experience in politics and electivism a lot, which is you get into that sort of trying to make things line up perfectly with your ethical framework and then the whole enterprise falls through like you don't get anything done because you're hung up on making one or two sacrifices in order to make the thing work i Mm. think that we've been seeing that a lot in national politics lately and it's just fascinating to be looking at it through this thing where we are so on cisco's side and on garrick's side as well and i love that you pointed out that he's got this sort of like immigrant tension where he's so protective of cardassia and at the same time so angry at the cardassian government Mm. that like we really believe in them and believe that if they're doing this it must be right but gustavo i think you just sort of bring up we bring these sort of questions back into our own lives and our own work and we're kind of like do i have the courage to make that sacrifice for the greater good or does it feel scarier and more complicated in real life than in a show where we're already rooting for the heroes and what is the greater mm-hmm. good as well because for example earlier in the in run of the other episodes we were talking about earlier when Barail takes the fall for opaka right he mm-hmm. was he made the decision mm-hmm. that the greater good and by the way i had forgotten about the opaka twist i had forgotten by, which, which is a great which is a great name for a drink or something the opaka twist but the, <laughs> i had forgotten about that twist but he he made the decision i will take the fall and and i will i will uh, i will i will not uh you know i will let this woman kai win but at that point she was just was she a kai already no she was um because that was the issue she wasn't kai yet. No, she, she was, was a fellow uh, vedic or Right, she was a when it went. So she will he will let this slimy person believe that she's got something on him enough for to kill his career. But all he had to do was say the real thing that happened, which is that Opaka was the one that made the choice, not him. And he believes that for the greater good, he has to make that decision. Right, so this is a different decision for the for the for yeah. both of them for the common good. In the case of Cisco, it's like I'm just going to stay quiet about this thing happening because ultimately we need the Romulans in this war to be able to able to be able to be even have a shot. And in the case of in that one, it was I'm I am going to make a determination that it is better for people to hold Apaka in high regard as a you know a, you know as a as a symbol of purity. Uh, and and what we should strive for, and not tell the truth, because that's better for everybody. And I'm going to let my career die, you know, on the vine when when you know not and not yeah. go. And it would be better. And I think that we both agree that it would have been better. I mean, certainly people would have been heartbroken about Opaka, but Homegirl is dead. I mean, you had mm-hmm. Varile would have been able to yeah. serve as a much better Kai than Wynn was, because Wynn is a slimy person completely duplicitous asshole yeah i mean i really i think that barile made the wrong choice and that like a lot of people he has a bit of a martyr complex i mean Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. watching this time 
I feel like I can there there he there is a real legitimate concern about what happens to the national mythology of the leader who saw folks through the revolution if they view her as having been a conspirator but there is a conversation you can have around that and also like she sacrificed her own son this wasn't somebody else's kids this right. is like you know i could say that she did the wrong thing but it was clearly not motivated by self interest and the reality that we saw and that he knew was that if he didn't run, it'd be her. And it's interesting because it's so rare for any person, to, any politician especially, to fall on their sword in a situation like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it's kind of shocking to see him do that here. And also for me to then say that I think he was wrong to fall on his sword there. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad yeah. to see that you agree. Yeah. You know? and, and, and actually, and I, and I caught myself... Uh, you know, quoting or, or paraphrasing the undiscovered country. When I said human, I said that she was act. He was acting very. Hmm. She was acting very. She was a human by making a mistake. That is in turn. That is that is a racist term. Remember, an undiscovered country. When when the when the Klingons yeah. say like humans, <laughs> even the term is racist. So, uh, but what I mean to say is an imperfect person, right? As opposed to a, to a. Yeah. To, as as far as Opaka, like being viewed as an as an imperfect person, and just he was not willing, he was not willing to let that happen. I think it mixes with his martyr complex, but it but it but it's mm-hmm. also this this notion that we need this mythology about this person to be able to go forward. Which I guess he made that decision. I mean, he no, I don't think so. He he says it. He says that it's it's the will of the prophets. So it's it is based on his faith. He's saying like this is what the prophets have told me. I need to do. Because they were guilting the shit out of him when he was in when he was in the vision, so <laughs> like he knew it's like all right, all right, prophets, I will take this fall for this one. Um, but do you but, think but anybody yes. in real life would fall on their sword like that in politics to hold it up national myth? I don't know. I do not know. Um, I I I'm sure I have. I might have met some people in my in my career that might that might fall into that category, but I don't know. I mean, it's it's it would be hard to create a parallel of what exactly, huh? Yeah, I mean, because it's religious, also. I mean, that is it's different, you know. Um, I feel like in most cases, people who are as poorly suited for politics don't get as far as Baril did, because one of the things that really emerges in that episode is that Baril is very unskilled and uncomfortable in the political game and while i think we acknowledge that you know a lot of people would be a better kai than win because win is horrible um but then at the same time like it raises the question to me like would barile actually have been a good kai or would he have been Mm. so limited by his unwillingness to play the political game and his lack of temperament for it that he would have created a different kind of problem that is oh my god that is some shit right there <laughs> that, that is some shit right there Good point because it's because you're you're because you're right it's not because it's not it's not just the 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 uh as as as, as alana was saying earlier the martyr complex but i think you're probably right that he was just like, there's part of him which is like, shit, I can get out of this. I don't have to be in a situation where I'm, mm. where I'm going to have to make decisions for all these people and be looked at 
like it, it does take a particular type of person to know the responsibility that it entails to be a decision maker, particularly at the executive level. And so he was, and he was not ready for it. I think you're, you're right to point that out. I, I think, didn't he, uh, I, I have to, I guess, see, you people are going to make me rewatch this entire damn thing for the record. So, cause I know that, that, that Burial dies of like a disease or something. Not that, is it the same season or the next season? It's like a season and a half later. And okay. it isn't, what happens is they're in a terrible shuttle crash mm-hmm. and he gradually dies of his injuries because when refuses to let him go into basically like a medically induced coma until Bashir can repair the damage. And he just kind of rolls over for her and says, it's the will of the prophets. And that's how wild. Oh, because right, cause he, cause, cause the thing is that there was like, he was, she was asking for advice or something, right? There was some, there was some negotiation that he was in the middle of. And then yeah. she, yeah, so she's like relying yeah. on him to be like, could you tell me what the fuck else? Like, who's this guy? You, could you, which is funny when you think about it, I guess he didn't have the capacity to be an executive, but he definitely had the capacity to be a, but a diplomat, like he had the ability to do that. Cause if I remember that correctly, that was the issue that she was like, no, 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 no. I need to, I need to talk to him. And she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep me awake. Cause I got to tell her about this guy and I got to tell her about this other guy and the, the deals that we made that we must have yeah. made or something. That was part of it. So he was set to be a diplomat. But she's playing into his vanity because she's pretending that she needs his, like, I'm sure he's legitimately better at that than her, perhaps, but she totally is being like, oh, I need you. I need you so that he, well, she's a garbage, so but she's a garbage die. human. You know what I mean? I, absolutely. No, yeah. she doesn't give a shit if he dies. Like, yeah. she's a garbage human, but she does need him. In that, you know, it's like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing in this regard. Like, whatever. Like, damn, we should have we should have watched that episode. But it doesn't matter. I think, like, she, I think she did not need him and is just trying to get him to die. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, and, and again, like, she sees that he has this murder complex. I got to watch that one. episode again. But I think knowing, one. knowing how much of a garbage human this person is, I, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. Because <laughs> Kai Wynn was terrible. <laughs> terrible. Uh, Got you. Because I was going to ask you whether you think, whether you think, I'm going to ask you all a question. Do you think, considering that we watched a whole, we watched a couple of episodes with Wynn and we watched a couple of episodes with Dukat, who's more of a garbage person? Dukat or Wynn? Because one of them is, they're both petty (laughs) and small, but one of them is far more like, cunning and 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 certainly murders like ducat is a murderous piece of garbage but win is like yeah. this 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 small like she was willing to 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 plunge her recently uh, uh you know liberated planet into a goddamn civil war again over replicators because they because they weren't following what she wanted right so who's a worse alien ducat or win hmm. <laughs> i mean i'm gonna say ducat because of also the level of the interpersonal violence from him, you know? Um, But I I think ultimately she's all about power for herself directly, but there are moments where she does the right thing on rare occasion. And I don't actually think he has any, but Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, it's, I feel like it's hard to compare them to (laughs) me. If I were to choose like, 
who is your favorite Deep Space Nine villain? I'm always going to sort of steer toward Win for the simple reason that, like, you don't meet many real life Ducats who, mm, like, yes. Mm. Like you, they they exist. You find them from time to time, but like the number of Kai wins I have worked with in my wow. lifetime, wow. like she's such <laughs> an everyday kind of Desperate. horrible mm-hmm. that like there's just yeah. something really appealing yeah. about one of the main antagonists being this passive aggressive jerk. Mm. <laughs> um. That's just really like she's so relatable, and I think she's relatable to the point where, like, maybe I'm saying too much about myself, but like, where you can <laughs> kind of see yourself at your wor- like, I can't see myself at my worst moments becoming Ducat, I can see myself at my worst moments becoming Kai Wen. And you could see yourself at your worst moments, mm. just seething, just just saying, kind of in a, in a like, yes, of course, child. Every time she said that to Kira, I wanted to punch the damn screen. Uh. Of course, child. It's the way that she says it. Ugh. Yeah, but but I guess you are you are right. I have met, I have definitely met and have worked with some Kaiwids. Yeah, and so much of it really does go to Louise Fletcher too, and her mm-hmm. like she. You could see if you watch. I feel like we like now need to do the Kai Win episode where we kind of watch the progression. <laughs> oh, we kind of had a bit of that when we had Anthony Oliveria on. Like we talk about her a lot. We do. Yeah. As I say, her exchange with Cisco in the beginning of that uh, in the beginning of yes. the episode, um, where yes. she's trying to get him to subtly support her campaign yeah. yes. that I, yes, that yes, was yes, what yes, i was yes. thinking of is that is the most passive aggressive thing that has ever been committed to camera and it is brilliant yeah. and that is an absolute on yeah. the it's absolutely on the money it, you just have to change a couple of the of, of a couple of the events or a couple of the, the but that that type of conversation absolutely i am aware of it happening all the damn time like this this soft manipulation kind of like you know let's yeah come on down with like yeah we'll do this thing we'll like stand next to each other and talk about how great it is and, to, and just just for the sake of like i just need, know that i need this person to stand next to me because it'll be beneficial to me politically. That that absolutely felt like a real, like deeply political conversation in the way that you know that sometimes you know it it's had in electoral politics. Like I could definitely see that. Hmm. And one of the are there any other moments in these episodes? Um, one of the fun mm-hmm. things is that um, you see over and over throughout the series, like Cisco is completely immune. <laughs> the Kai Wit way of moving through the world. Yes. And yes. one of the things that both actors do really beautifully is like she'll go through her song and dance. And if you watch Avery Brooks, like you see the gears turning. It's like it's like watch their conversations and watch whoever's not talking He's as so much good. as the camera allows mm. you to, because they're both very much stage actors and they're <laughs> doing like you could see exactly what they're thinking of each other and how frustrated they are with each other whenever they interact. And it's just really fun. And really, I think a lot of what makes Win such a good villain is that you can see 
her reacting when what she's trying to do doesn't work. Yeah, agreed. Mm. It's such a it's a great dance. And again, this just there's so many just fantastic performances throughout this whole thing. And I again, I had forgotten. And it's even though it's like it's a it's a it's a slightly stunted type of acting that is of the of the time, right? There is there's a lot of things as I said earlier like the idea that in the first in the first seasons they were just an, they were just completely enamored with this idea that there had to be a B story. Right, so they would split between these two stories <laughs> happening at the same time, and it's like that's a, this is a sitcom structure that gets tiresome. And eventually, mm-hmm. I don't know when exactly they left it, but by the time you get to the episodes in the fifth or sixth season that I watched, like that's gone, and it's, you're just telling one story. And I was like, yes, this is. They kind of learned to get into that, and then this as well. Even with the stunted, sometimes acting, still it is such. They're such great performances because they're great freaking actors, like both. It, I really, yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was reminded of all these folks. It's such great stuff. Are there other things from these episodes that you watched that you had a moment of being like, "Oh, that so happens in politics." The um, way that endorsement meeting went down. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'll tell you. It's the the thing is that certainly the duplicitous, slimy nature of wind. And and and, and what Sarah was saying, I I will have I will have to tip my hat to you, my friend, because you are you are correct. There is something that is, you know, quotidian about her dickishness that you know that makes mm-hmm. her very relatable, mm-hmm. as opposed to just this, you know, this gargantuan villainous destructive force that Ducat was all the way to the end. But that that win was certainly a much more you know, recognizable one. So I think I certainly I was reminded in many of her interactions and in the way that she kind of goes through the world, the fact that there's this whole conversation that was it Burial and, uh, and Kira that have it when they're like telling themselves what, like, what the hell do people see in this woman? Like she's about to be elected Kai. Like what the fuck? Like how many times have I had that conversation about some people in politics right now? <laughs> like, I don't like, they don't know how, how much of a snake this person is. Are you kidding me right now? And, and yet they, they just go about the world and they keep acting as if though they're righteous, good people. And they're, garbage humans so it's I, I guess so i guess that certainly there were there were many instances the, the instances that reminded me more of my of of some of the interactions that i've had in politics or i've seen in politics over the years basically every time kai win is on screen there's something about the way that she's just <laughs> as you as, as you stated earlier i think as sarah said it yes there's something about the way that she moves around or, 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 around the world that just it it certainly reminds me of so much so much dickishness in, in in the world that I inhabit. Yeah, yeah. But Jordan politics, at least we see it, you know, has factions that I think sometimes map to certain people are more religious traditionalists and others are either less religious or more progressive in their interpretations. Let me restate that. But Jordan politics, as we see it, has factions, which of course is always interesting um, when you're looking at a country that's just coming into independence after occupation. Uh, some of these different uh, factions relate to the particular in- religious interpretations of um, the religion that the people in that faction have, and others are more about what people's views of what the Bajoran relationship to the Federation should be. Um, you know, different groups have different feelings about how to treat 
collaborators or, you know, the people who worked with the um, Dominion, even if they told themselves they were, you know, doing it to keep folks safe or what have you. Do you feel like the political divides we see on Bajor ring pretty true to the sorts of divisions you see in other nations or areas that are newly newly liberated in the real world? I I would have to I'd have to think about that a little bit because I certainly think that the I mean and, I, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. It is fascinating to see a a recently you know liberated for lack of a better term right you know the occupiers leave. Um, they they leave just the country bereft, in this case, a planet bereft of resources, um, you know, with a barely functioning government, and then they have to they have to rebuild, and they do so, but with faith at its core, because I do think that there's there's something, and I'm sure that you've talked about this in prior in prior episodes. Basically, there's they remind me of of Jewish folks, as in there's some folks who see it as a there's a deep religious strain to it, but other folks just see it as an identity. Mm-hmm. They might not participate in all the religious iconography or what have you, but they still deeply, deeply identify as that. So in the case of Bajorans, they see yeah. the prophets as a as a defining as a defining part of their identity, as you know, as kind of the the ones that have led them to this place and are kind of rebuilding around that. And so they look to the leaders who are the religious leaders as as part of how they're going to do this rebuilding. Um, and so that 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 struggle that they have, and we've talked about it before, right? The idea that in the case of Kai Win, she is a religious leader who then becomes, you know, who then becomes the leader of the of the actual civil government and kind of does a terrible job of it, mm-hmm. but gets to that but gets to that position because of the way that she's respected as a faith leader on Bajor. There's I don't necessarily see parallels outside of that, but I do think it's a it's a it's a fascinating notion of what happens when you have a country that is trying to get back on its feet, has a a big part of its of its identity been defined by this. Because also we remember that the turning point. I mean, the series began with the discovery of the wormhole, right? Which is there's like the the palace of the prophets, the celestial temple. Thank you, the, ce- the celestial I, temple. I feel, right. I feel like I yeah. like I'm I'm wandering in with the facts. Like. Right. No, but you, you're you're absolutely wandering in at the right time, my friend. So yes. So they the entire turning point of this of this uh, of the entire story, right, is because there is the finding of the celestial temple. If the celestial temple hadn't been found, they would not have been able to like they wouldn't have been interested. Polit- they would have been interesting politically, maybe to the Federation. They would have taken that much longer to actually come in there. But it everything kind of kicked into high gear, and it was their their belief that the celestial temple and the emissary right because also there's also to understand that that which is another thing that i find just fascinating about this series that they make one of the main characters a an important religious figure in the mythology of the planet that that there that is there right so all of this means that faith is at the core of what they of how they organize themselves politically you know that, that faith is at the core of everything that they do and as they try to rebuild themselves politically, faith is at the core of it. So what other what other parallels exist between countries that have been, you know, that have that are that are post-occupation that have faith at the center of it? I can't think of many. You know, so that's that's a that was a long way to go around the barn to say that I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. sure that it would that it reminds me of any one particular country. 
Yeah. I think where it might be hard is that a lot of the examples that come to mind for us don't have a single unifying majority religion that uh-huh. has that mm-hmm. kind of universal cultural sway that so many formerly colonized countries either there's been a religion that's been forced upon them from the outside or an effort to just completely squelch religious activity or you're in a situation like India where you have a ton of religion. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's you're right. It's really hard to come up with an example that's as neat as Bajor. Or you have, yeah, when you have liberation, you you then have partition, like because of people being suppressed and then mushed into different areas and there being heterogeneous religious populations that have been forced into conflict with each other. Yeah. No, it's interesting to hear the way that doesn't really can correspond to things for us. I think that one parallel is, though, the question of independence versus um, joining in with more powerful alliances or political formations, etc., is about the main one I can find. But again, the what what the what the Federation offers is not a normal kind of annexation scenario, right? It's not yeah. like you're going to become. Well, depends who you ask. Okay. I think some people think that, that that joining the Federation is going to do away with their culture. Like certainly the Ferengi, their attitude is like <laughs> we're going to be sucked up into the, the root beerization, as I think Quark calls it at one point. Like the root, like you know, yeah. it becomes like root beer. It's insipid. Like I, I think, like there, I, I think, like some people have like a concern about human universal cultural hegemony or mm-hmm. something like that. Like there's a piece yeah. to that. And, and I can't disagree, except, I mean, when we're talking, I mean, the Ferengi is a, the, <laughs> they're a completely different uh, group of folk, right? They've, uh, because at the center of their entire, uh, of their entire endeavor is, you know, hyper capitalism, if you want to call it that, right? They, they have, it's, sure. it's all about, it's all about the rules of acquisition. This is at the centerpiece of their, their, their idea that does not include collaborating with anybody uh it does not you know Mm. even even business partners as many of the rules of acquisition will tell you and although i can't name them necessarily off the top of my head right now i'm sure that many of the rules of acquisition will (laughs) tell you that even partners can be lied to if you feel that there is profit to be gained from lying or or betraying your partner so the idea that they would actually annex to anybody is they would be become part of the federation is I, i think is a that that's never going to happen because of the nature of what their culture actually is. Mm. Yeah, and we see, and I think we ha- we um, on our list was an episode dealing with Ferengi politics, and there's several of them. But it's sort of talk about a culture that is a hyper capitalist autocracy, and I think we can name a few real world hyper capitalist autocracies that have emerged in a much bigger way since Deep Space Nine has ma- been made. Um, and we actually had some thoughts about it. Um, and um, one of the themes that we saw is that the, the Ferengi political episodes keep coming to the conclusion that power is actually a trap and something you don't want. Um, well, it, it, well, it's certainly the one that I saw, and I'd have to see a couple of more of the, the ones that you're talking about, but <clears throat> the one that I saw, uh, which was 
Uh, it was also a little clumsy. It was the first uh, first episode. It was the first. It was eleventh episode of the first season, right? Season one, episode eleven, and they're still getting the hang of things, right? So it's like it's it still it suffers a little bit from the stuntedness, if you will, of some of the first seasons. But it was still the the idea. Yes, I mean there was a the the Nagus fakes his own death, and then all of a sudden, after he names Quark as Nagus, and then the idea is that he's trying to protect his life, and everybody's trying to kill him. And, but that's just but the Nagus comes back and takes that power very, very happily. Like he knows how to manage that power. He just was like he did it in purpose to kind of figure out, like to 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 flesh out whether his son was ready for for the scepter, which he makes the conclusion that he's not. But he grabs that power very, very easily back then. He feels really comfortable with it. So maybe it's just that uh uh even as 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 greedy as Quark is, maybe Quark is just maybe Quark is not the one that's ready for that power. But the Nagus grabs it back mm-hmm. very easily. And even in this very early episode, that that guy also God damn it, so many great performances. I love both Armin <laughs> Shimmerman and and uh, uh, and the Nagus. I forget this Wallace guy's name. Sean. Oh my God, so Wallace good. Wallace Sean, yeah. so good. Noted <laughs> socialist and. Oh god, that's so bad. But noted socialist intellectual Wallace Shawn, in fact. He's um <laughs> written really good essays about why he's a socialist. And uh yeah. going back, like like he's he's been writing about being a socialist since like the seventies too. Like this is Yeah. Yeah. What a great character that guy is. Um <laughs> You know, I, uh, how do you feel about Ferengi episodes? Cause like, I know that when we decided to watch this in preparation for this, this ship for us to tape, my, my partner was like, are you seriously going to make me watch a Ferengi episode with you? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's what love means. It's watching Ferengi episodes with me. <laughs> so, I take it you like Ferengi episodes. I, well, I, it's just, I don't remember many of them. I know that there's probably, you know, there's probably like 10 or 15. I mean, they didn't, they didn't have, they make that many of them. I, I do appreciate the fact that they were, they were made, because uh, if I remember correctly from Next Generation, they were kind of scarier. Right, they were like scarier and more and darker, mm-hmm. and they were they were they were made more like I don't know more fun, if you will. And then should and then Quark is such a great character, and the development of Rom as a as a responsible father, and the growing of Nog as a you know as his own individual, all of those. So if I, you know what, now that I'm thinking about it, because you said Ferengi episodes, and then I started mentioning all the characters and how they developed along, and I, I guess I do I do appreciate, it. I do enjoy it. Because it because it developed the the that race as a, as more as more complex than it was originally you know thought of, and 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 they were like just great performances all around. And the development of those characters, Nog from being this you know this annoying little little rascal to to kind of like coming into his own, developing his own reputation, and the idea that he became the first Ferengi captain of an actual friggin' you know star you know starship was just like that's that's an enormous thing and the fact that 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 rom who was obviously way smarter and more talented that than mm-hmm. than 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 quark ever was was just constantly i mean at first they they didn't get him at first right they had to write him a little bit for, like in this episode he's kind of shallow but that's cuz it's the first episode the first season everybody's shallow in the first season but the but the notion that he was very very purposely sacrificed to make sure that his son was in a better position than he was. 
and that he would do what he needed to do for his brother because I guess he figured that his brother could be far more successful than him. So him being attached to his brother meant he would always have the resources to provide for his son. That's you know that that that's just that's great character development. So I'm, uh, so I guess yes, I like Ferengi episodes now that I think about them. <laughs> well, my wife loves the Ferengi episodes, and whenever I start getting into it about the Ferengi, she's like, "Nope, nope, nope." Remember that they're that like. <laughs> You're thinking of the worst of them, but remember that there's like five or six that are among the best episodes of this entire series. Mm. And like, you know, recalibrate your thinking. Think about little green men and not about like. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah, when they, like, they're the. Oh shit. So I'd forgotten about that one. They're, they're the aliens in Roswell. I forgot. Yeah. That they're, that the problem is that, su- that the bad ones are real bad and they make you forget that the good ones are real good. Mm. I got to rewatch this whole freaking show. You people are going to make me rewatch this whole damn show. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So we want on just sort of a different note than where we've been going for the rest of it. But um, one of the things that we've gone into over and over in a lot of different ways is that Deep Space Nine, in a lot of ways, represented diversity well, especially for its time. But one of the big gaps was that it had very little um, Latina representation. Um, it had that one character, um, Kike, who showed up for about three episodes and promptly died in in order to, you know spur o'brien to fight in a war um but sort of sort of how do you respond to that lack of representation as a viewer and where do you see yourself reflected well you know i didn't it it is in hindsight that i think about such things because i'll tell you it was certainly was when i was watching it for the when it was when it was fresh right in my memory and or when it was when it was brand new right um it is not something that i really thought about um, so I grew up in Puerto Rico, right? So I, I didn't grow up in the U.S. I grew up in Puerto Rico, and most my English comes from watching cable television. So it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I was. I didn't have such thoughts about inclusion or 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 lack of representation. It just wasn't something I thought about when I first watched it. Um, and it's only in hindsight that kind of that I kind of think about that, and I think about the fact that you know I learned so uh, the English I learned was from watching things like The Facts of Life or or cheers, uh, you know, or friends, you know, like every single one of them, just like the supremely white shows. And part of that is added to the mix that, you know, I'm, I'm light skinned and certainly white passing. When I got off the plane in 1998 from Puerto Rico, I thought I was white and it wasn't until, Mm -hmm. you know, finding myself face to face with the fact that, you know, there's a couple of experiences that I had in my first couple of years here, but I remember, I think it was the first semester or the second semester of grad school when uh one there was like this mixer for new students or something and i go and one of the and one of the professors and i've since forgotten who this person was but i think it was a white i'm pretty sure it was a white lady who was like you know she introduced myself she introduces herself and then uh you know i said you know what my name was and i said from where i was and she in all seriousness says said oh you're from puerto rico oh you must be one of the good ones like she actually said this aloud, and it, and it was, and I was like, I don't, what? I don't, I don't understand. It was such a confusing moment because I was, what, what is, what is that, what does that mean? It was, 
it took me a little bit, like my political education really didn't start until I started teaching college. And I started teaching college mm. in 1999. I got to New York in 98. I started teaching college at Hunter College in 1999. I was 23 at the time. And I was having, you know, and then I was, I started to kind of really come to grips with uh, the fact that there is, you know, what my privilege is, or my privilege has continued to be. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a white passing, straight cis, tall, bilingual, educated male. Like there is, there was so much that I kind of started to to realize about what my own experience was by by talking to the students that were in my classroom who were from every you know it's Hunter College so it was every ethnicity you could think of and 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 meeting them and finding out that there are people in my classroom who were probably smarter and harder working than I was, but they didn't have access that the access that I did or the privilege that I did. And so all of that to say that when I was watching this originally, I had never entered my mind as far as like representation or lack thereof. Since then, I would say that certainly they, that, uh, and, and actually came, even though it was certainly not as good a show as we would have all liked, but when, when Belana Torres was introduced mm. in, 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 in Voyager and I'm like, Oh shit, her last name is Torres. Like that's, and she definitely looks either Puerto Rican or Dominican. Like the fact that yeah, she was yeah. half half Dominican, half Klingon. What a goddamn mix that is! Whoop! That's like she was. She was another just spectacular. I just i I think I got. I do. I will tell you this is a little secret. I do think that my particular attraction for strong for strong women came from watching Star Trek. <laughs> so, so there's that, <laughs> but, 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 but as far as representation, yeah. I never really thought about it. And it wasn't until, you know, now I'm looking back on it and, and there's still, I mean, it would have been probably, you know, I think it probably would have been better, but then since most of these folks were certainly most of the actors were white, but you know, a Ferengi's not white, you know, a Klingon is not white. Certainly yeah. many, many of the Klingon actors are black actually. So there's so much, there's so many of these folks that are not, you know that that there weren't necessarily human, so it. I guess it didn't come into my mind as much. I think what you're saying that's really interesting is that it's like you. It doesn't come into your mind until you get the positive, visible representation that you're saying that that moment of seeing Belana Torres, who's played by um, Roxanne Dawson, who's whose um, birth name is Caballero. I was trying to quickly look up what her exact background is, but she's definitely a Latina actress playing a character who is of mixed Latina and Klingon descent. Um, but yeah, that when you get that positive representation, it occurs to you, but when it's absent, you don't always see it. Yeah. Especially, I think, in the 90s, when, as you said, we were so used to seeing shows that were just flat out all white casts. Yep. There also might be a piece of this too, though, where like, well, I I did not visit Puerto Rico in the 90s or 80s, Lord knows. So like, I don't know what most TV was, but I know for a lot of people in other countries, they're like, well, most of the shows that we have that are local do have people who look like me on them. So when I'm looking for show, when I'm looking at shows from the U.S., I'm not like looking to see myself because I see myself on our local shows. That's actually quite interesting. I don't know and if that was a factor. Probably that's probably true because the thing is, I I loved cable television, right? But we still had mm -hmm. like our local channels, and I still watched. You know, there were four or five shows that I watched religiously every week. Uh, certainly, I watched the news all the time. My mom was consistently watching soap operas from 
Although most soap operas were not Puerto Rican, they were like Mexican. Most of them were Mexican. Mexican, yeah. Uh, but and most but of them yeah, were as pale as me, and I basically have no melanin on me. But, <laughs> exactly. But, you know. but yes, there there is a uh, uh, there is there's also the, there's also the fact that there is. I mean, Puerto Rico is also it is kind of a, a it, it is also a racist society. There is a colorism in Puerto Rico, which is all which is like like we're talking like Mexico, like most people in Mexican TV are not indigenous. They are you know they're light skinned white passing people, um, and and and. They're very European looking, certainly, and and that kind of yeah. that probably was very true of people of 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 most TV in Puerto Rico as well. They were like some, uh, you know, some characters in some you know some comedy shows, etc. Or there was like some comedic actors that certainly were, you know, obviously black. Uh, 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 so, but but for the most part, it just it it just wasn't part of the of the discourse that I was thinking about as far as representation in, in media or in public, you know, uh, I, it was not something I thought about. Mm. Um, I think our question that we have to wrap is, are there, are there examples or ideas from the Star Trek world that you feel like are lessons that people can learn in their activism and organizing work? Let me think about that one. I mean, I'd have to, I mean, I would say that, that having, you know, as we talked about before, the fact that there, that Trek up until this moment, up until DS9, and certainly the beginning of DS9, there was still kind of this uh, veneer of just the veneer of utopia. And then it was kind of muddied by being in contact with, you know, recently occupied territories and, you know, and, and war and all that sort of stuff um, that, you know, that there is, that there is, there, there is something to be said about striving for things that are better. There is something to, there is something to be said for striving for not having to use currency, you know, having guaranteed healthcare for everybody, uh, Having a replicator in every corner so nobody's ever hungry. Like those those things are I think those things are are, are worth striving for. I'm not sure we'll ever achieve it, uh, but but they're certainly worth striving for. Um and and I guess just that that the as I look at as I look back at some of these as some of these episodes that I watch for this for this process, um and thinking specifically, since there was so much, uh, there there was so much about Bajor in there, the development of Bajor as a as a struggling democracy, just that there is uh, in in the same vein that there is that there's something, it is it is worth fighting for a system that is representative and a system that gives everybody shared prosperity, um, that maybe fighting for a you know certainly fighting for a replicator in every corner might be too far afield. Hmm. but 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 fighting to make sure that we got replicators for everybody or not replicators but uh, uh, uh reclamators for for more people might uh. be a worth might be a worthwhile endeavor um so i would say that, that that's that's kind of what comes to mind hmm. i feel like for me a lot of it from this show in particular is about coalition building and what that looks like ah I like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. 
So is there anything we haven't hit up yet that you would like to talk about vis-a-vis Deep Space Nine? Just like, I mean, I'll tell you that that is, I, I repeat again that it is my absolute favorite Trek show. Um, and, you know, not to, not to crap on the newbies, but just, you know, I saw one episode, one, I saw a season and a half of Discovery and I'm like, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> it's like, I have to, I have mm-hmm. to just acknowledge this a different, it's if I, if I start from scratch, a friend of mine who's a big Trek fan told me, you just have to think about it as a show that happens in a different, in a different universe. Like just think about it in a different universe and maybe it'll be better. Um, I am, I am very appreciative that y'all helped me to kind of, you know, revisit and revisit and rediscover the show. Cause there's just, there's so much about it that I appreciate. There is like, there's the portrayal of, of the imperfect nature of politics and the yeah. imperfect nature of relationships. And, you know, we, and I'm sure that you've had conversations, all conversations about, uh, 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 you know, about the, about identity and sexuality and like the, the idea, yeah. the idea of, of, of trills, I just find amazing, just fascinating. And it was so, the, those shows were so well done talking about identity and new, you know, old, the fact that he was called old man. I love that right from the beginning. He would, they were mm-hmm. talking about a trans character right in your face and, and yep. you kind of yep. like dealt with it. Um, and, and the fact that there were so many strong women in the show, there's uh, and that, and that as it got, as they got comfortable with, with the writers got more comfortable, then they started to, kind of develop their own, you know, develop their own style and just develop characters that, that were shallow at the beginning. I just, I really, I mean, there's some about the show that I really, really, really love. And, um, and, 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 and again, even the, even the quaint, silly, slow ass fight scenes just, you know, brought me back to when I watched them, you know, when they were first airing. So I, I'm, uh, I'm appreciative for the opportunity to be able to, revisit some of these shows and and as i and i'll say it for one last time i think you freaking people are going to make me rewatch the whole damn show please do and let us know what you think and what other insights you have because it has been an absolute pleasure and delight just hearing your thoughts and hearing your perspective on this show that we love i appreciate you giving me the invitation i i really i was really looking forward to this oh you know i'll let you close us out with one thing i um you know, it can take us a hot minute to finish editing these episodes, but sadly, we know that the crisis on Puerto Rico is going to be ongoing. Yeah. Uh, if you have thoughts about good places for folks to donate money, um, yes. let me know. I do. Back five years ago, Maria struck Puerto Rico. And one of the things that became very clear to me as I was trying to help out folks back there was that the best way to do so was to identify organizations on the ground that were already in existence before the crisis, before the before the the, the hurricane. Organizations that are Puerto Rican led that have connections and credibility all over, you know, in in the community that they are in, and that already know how to serve the communities that they are in, and they just need more resources to do it. And so, I partnered up with an organization called the Maria Fund back then, that operated on that. So on that notion that the goal of finding, you know, of, of an organization that's part, that's founded in New York was not to rewrite the book on things. It was to find the organizations that were already doing work and then give them more resources so they could do more of it. So these same folks that started the Maria fund back in, in, uh, in, you know, five years ago, uh, started the, the, the Fiona community response 
fund. And uh, the way that you find, if you if you go to Fiona, if you go to if you search Fiona Community Response Fund, it'll direct you to a it'll direct you to a website where you can see uh, um, the the organizations that are being supported. These are Ayuda Legal, Taller Salud, Agitarte, Étnica, Instituto para la Agroecología, Campamento contra las Cenizas de Peñuelas and ACER. All of those are organizations that are Puerto Rican-led, Puerto Rican-based. They're already doing organizing on the ground way before the storm and giving them resources so that they can not only aid in the immediate aftermath of the of this particular storm, but to continue to build power in the communities that they're based in is the best way to actually help Puerto Rico get on its feet in a real way. So one last time, if you Google Fiona, Community Response Fund, you'll be able to find these folks, and every single dollar that you go to, that that goes to them will go to one of these organizations that is doing work on the ground. Thank you. I'm giving it to them now, and I'll include a link to it in our uh, podcast notes. I found it thank right you, away. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so. you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, where can our listeners keep up with your? Uh, as, I usually as, see your work online, but that's different. Came up with you on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly. Um, I, I believe that you are that you are familiar with my Twitter presence. Uh, at NY Senator Rivera is the best way to do it. Um, it is. It is actually me writing these damn uh, tweets. Ninety five percent of them, as you will notice if you pay attention for even a little bit. Uh, oh yes, I, it's kind of yeah. <laughs> kind of has uh, kind of has my own personality in it. Uh, but but at NY Senator Rivera is me in, on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, etc. And if you are a Bronxite uh, and you live in the Northwest Bronx, particularly in the new parts of my district in Riverdale, just uh, look me up, Gustavo Rivera, uh, and then uh, you will find a way to to contact my Senate office. And uh, and we got uh, a lot of good work to do next year. But uh, I'm 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 hoping that. Uh, Hoping that we got some good uh, legislative successes. I'm working on some stuff already. I love it. And it's so funny. I was just realizing, like, we've spoken so much about Puerto Rico and, like, nothing at all about the Bronx. So I apologize in advance for that. Um, all but good. I have Puerto Rico on the brain right now for a lot of reasons, you know? So, yeah. Yes, I, I understand and I appreciate it. But obviously, we, we appreciate your service in the New York community as well. So as for me... Um, I am online a little bit too much on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And of course, this podcast is part of Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. And Sarah, where can our listeners find you? I am on Twitter a lot less than Alana thinks I should be at Padashah, P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-T. Although I will warn you that the figure skating season has started. So if I'm back on Twitter, it's going to be like 5 a.m. play-by-plays of like ice dance in Germany. Um, I am also <laughs> P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-T on Letterboxd, um, where... I am actually remembering to put up my film reviews again, and I write about film and figure skating at thefinersports.com. Excellent. Um, I also, I have, a, well, you know what, I'll, I'll share, I, I have a big piece on Judas Priest coming out, but I'll, 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 I'll share that information when it's there. But um, 
I guess that's what we have to say. And Sarah, do you, does Odo have any final words for us today? Yes. Thank you for listening to Deep Space Dive. And as Odo says, if you're out of reclamators, don't be Kai Win about it. Ooh. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs>